sometimes um, before I'm going to give a Dharma talk, I wish I could disappear. (laughs) I wish I didn't have to do it. I'd almost rather be in a car accident than (laughs) than have to give a Dharma talk. It's part of my introvert experience. Yeah, believe it or not, I'm actually an introvert. I don't feel that way today, though. It's interesting. Like, today feels really different to me for whatever reason. I feel the experience I'm having right now is one of just wanting to be of service and have something useful to say and connect and share. Um, Because I know that this practice you know, can sometimes seem futile, right? Like, why am I here? Why did I do this? What's the point? Um, and I know for me, it was just, a, it was a lifesaver. Like, that's, that's what's true. Without this practice, well, A, I, a, I wouldn't be sitting here because I hate it so much. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> Um, but B, I wouldn't be sitting here, like, right? Like I, I may have made some alternate decisions that weren't going to be very um, helpful to this body's existence. Yeah, ways that um, weren't very friendly or kind to myself and definitely not to other people. So I, you know, I, I arrive in this room. Um, hopefully, I'm going to give a Dharma talk. We'll see what we'll see what happens. That's my plan. I wrote some stuff down, but I don't know what's going to come out actually. Um, yeah, and just to share this practice that we're doing, this thing that we're doing, that's actually kind of weird. You know, for some people, it's just a last last ditch effort you know it's like I tried everything else and now I'm going to go meditate (laughs) right like what why are we here and then I look at the rain and I look at the beauty and I see all of you and like this really really beautiful like being in the interviews or we don't call them interviews anymore sorry um what do you call them? Meetings. Meetings. <laughs> Group discussions. We used to call them interviews. I feel so honored to meet you, you know, and I wish I could meet all of you, and I, I'm not going to get that chance. Um, but here we are, humans, right, like living on this planet, just trying to survive. And one thing we have in common, there's not one person on this planet that we can look at, even the ones that we don't like very much. We have these enemies or these people that we put in opposition to us that we don't like, that they're other. Um, But one thing we do have in common is that we all suffer. You know, we all feel pain. We all want life to be better. And so I feel really honored to be in a room with people who... um, I don't know how many of you know the story, the Buddha's story. How many of you know the Buddha's like story? Yeah. And it might be mythological. We don't know. It might be a folk, folk tale. Um, I'm going to tell a little bit of it right now just for fun because <laughs> it's what I feel like doing. It's not in my notes, but it seems right. Um, so there was this man. He wasn't even a man yet. He was a teenager named Siddhartha Gautama, who uh, lived in a really wealthy family. So take yourself back, if you can, imagining 2,600 years ago. Right. So when we're looking at 2,600 years ago, palaces and wealth and all of those things looked really different than they do now, right? They, there was, when, I, when I look back then, I, I smell an earthiness, you know, and, and people didn't live as long as we did. And um, there was a lot of um, not, we didn't, they weren't jumping on airplanes or anything like that. So people stayed very close. So Siddhartha Gautama lived within the walls of this 
kingdom, as far as we know. And he was born into a family that were land, wealthy landowners. And his father really wanted him to follow in his legacy. But at his birth, his father was told that your son is either going to be this amazing spiritual seer, S-E-E-R, or he's going to be a warlord, right? He's going to take over. And so, of course, this, this wealthy landowner said, oof, I'd rather him be a warlord because then <laughs> the money keeps coming and we keep the land. And to be a spiritual seer is, wasn't as um, prestigious. So he did everything he could to keep his son from seeing the ailments of the world. And so he kept him happy for the first 16 years of his life. And at at age 16, 17, as far as we know, um, he asked his charioteer, he said to his charioteer, will you please take me outside of the walls of my um, kingdom, of this place that I live? I'm ignorant. I don't know what goes on beyond these walls. So his charioteer took him outside of the walls And what he saw was somebody who was aging, right? Because inside the walls, all he saw was beauty and and youth and all of these things that were appealing. So outside the walls, he saw somebody aging. And he was really confused about that. He saw an old man walking with a stick. Okay, this is what aging looks like. And then he saw somebody sick. He saw somebody sick pus on the face and some kind of ailment that may have been leprosy. I don't, I'm not sure what it was, but that's how the translation goes. Somebody who was really ill in the body. What is this? I've never seen this. And then he, and then he saw somebody dead. He saw a dead, uh, he saw a corpse. I've never seen this, right? So old age, sickness and death. This is new to me. And so the charioteer said, yes, Lord, this is, this is what most humans go through. This is what you've been protected from, but this is what most humans go through. And then the final thing as the charioteer took him through the village, the final thing he saw was a renunciate. He saw somebody in robes. And they were carrying an alms bowl and they had robes on and their head was shaved. And the Buddha asked what there wasn't the Buddha yet, but Siddhartha Gautama asked what that was. And the charioteer said, um, that's a renunciate. That's somebody who's given up all the worldly, the worldly goods, right? Everything that most of us strive for, this person has given up. And the Buddha decided that that's what they wanted to do. He wanted to Give it up and check it out. What is this? What is the meaning of life? Basically is what he was asking. Let me see for myself what the meaning of life is. And he went on a journey. And it was a seven-year journey. And he went from everything from complete and utter annihilation of self, right? To the point where it said that he was eating a grain of rice. Only a grain of rice a day and a sip of water. And that was too extreme. So he went from being a a king, a prince, where he had everything, to this other extreme of having nothing, and almost complete annihilation. And that wasn't awakening either, right? Like total and complete renunciation was not awakening either. And so what ultimately happened was this understanding that there's a middle path. There's a way in between. And that's actually what we, we are um, teaching right now is the middle path, this way in between, which is the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So we're not looking at total hedonism, which looks like fun, right? 
Like we keep thinking that if I just succeed enough, if I just get, if I just get, if I just get, right? The person, the house, the job, the whatever. If I just get, I'll be fine. Or there's some way we think if I just renounce, if I just don't do, if I just give up, if I just let go, I'll be fine, right? Maybe you felt that on this retreat. But ultimately, what's the way in between? I, lo- I love that this room was split in half. You're the, you are the hedonists, and you are the renunciates. <laughs> Let's have a war. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was kind of amazing in, in the groups. We t- I, I, I don't know, I was having this vision of um, the Hunger Games. I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> I had um, my kids were a little bit younger when that those books came out so I read all of the Hunger Games and that like my survival depends upon my strength and my integrity and my will to live right and sometimes this practice can feel like the Hunger Games we're on this battleground So I still like the image of you being the <laughs> hedonist and you being the renunciates. I might not let that go for a while, but you, you can let it go. I'll just hold on to it for you. <laughs> you know, we sit in this place of, yeah, we live in the real world. We do. We live in the real world that asks so much of us. And at the same time, you know, it feels like bullshit, right? And so when the, when, when Siddhartha Gautama became the Buddha, sitting under the Bodhi tree and these Brahmins, these, uh, these sort of knowers of the Vedantic tradition that he had come from came to him and said, you need to speak this truth. You need to teach this. You must teach what you know now. And they came to him in some kind of vision and he said, no, I can't. They won't get it. They won't understand. And they said, you must, you must, you must. And he said, I can't. They won't understand. And they said, why? And he said, because they, so the they is us, so you know, they have too much dust in their eyes. I can't teach it because they won't get it. I've seen this thing that's really true and really real, but they won't understand. And then finally he agreed. Finally he said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll go out, I'll, I'll teach this truth that I've understood. And he said, but, but only, there's only a few people that are going to understand. And so I kind of look, like to look at us in this room as those people. Like we're the true one percenters. <laughs> you know, we're the, we're the ones who get it. <laughs> the, the one percenters, were, uh, they were placed wrong. We in this room are the ones who are at least willing to say, I'm, I, I want to see. I want to at least try to see what it might look like. Yeah? So one of the teachings that was really profound, and I want to I want to play, play credence to this, is that of the hindrances. That which hinders us from having dust in our eyes, like why the dust remains there. Maybe we just need goggles. I don't know, right? Like maybe that's all it takes, some goggles. But if we look at that metaphor of having dust in our eyes, the dust is what hinders us from seeing clearly, right? That's, what's, that's what blocks us from seeing what's true. It's what stands between us. And in the tradition of the 
the Satipatthana teaching, the hindrances, um, there are five hindrances that block us, that keep us from seeing clearly, that keep the dust in our eyes. And so I want to talk about those a little bit. Um, And I want to talk about these in a way that doesn't feel um, like judgment or like a flaw of yours, right? These are, these are, um, they aren't personal flaws, but they're just human experiences that happen, that are there. And sometimes they're there because they protect us or they've been there as some sort of coping mechanism, right? Just a way to um, land in the world. But these hindrances, they're, they're, every one of you have had them on this retreat. And I've heard them from most of you. But when I say them, you're going to understand them. And you're going you're gonna to see what I'm talking about. So the first one is the hindrance of desire. Desire. And just letting that settle in your body as you hear it, the hindrance of, and particularly sensual desire. So let's just sit with that experience. What is sensual desire? When I say that, does that even make sense in people's minds? Sensual desire, the need for, the want for, the leaning towards the craving, the I wish I had, if only, right? Does that make, does that, have you had that? Have you had that experience? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, where's the cappuccino machine, right? Like, what the fuck? Sorry. I'm not supposed to say that word in this hall. I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend anybody by that word. (laughs) Right? If only I had a softer bed. What's up with the bed? What's up with the person next to me? Why aren't there more cushions? Why aren't there thrones, actually? Excuse me. I deserve a throne. So that sensual desire, comfort, ease, right? Like my body needs comfort. And there's also privilege in that, right? There's privilege. I'm, a, I'm an American. <laughs> in America, we get these things. Just to tell you, I started my practice, um, you know, almost 25 years ago. And I, the first thing I did was go to India for three months. And when I was there, I sat, I was a Hindu back then, so it was a different tradition. But I sat in a hall with 4,000 people on a marble floor with no cushion for six hours at a time. So just check that out. (laughs) Just check that out in your body right now. (laughs) So yeah, this is what it looks like, right? It looks real tight and real sweaty. India in August is not cool. (laughs) Six, you know, a lot of people, six hours. And so, you know, we would just sit there and we just did it. We just did. And did I have desire? Yeah. Did I want water? Yeah. Did I have to pee? Yeah. But if I got up, I'd lose my spot. Like It's like going to Coachella. I don't know if you've ever been to Coachella. But you cannot leave. If you're in the front row, you can't leave. Or you're going to lose your spot. So this desire that we have, just our core, sometimes it's just core desire for comfort, for ease, right? And so how does that arise? And knowing it, acknowledging it, it's here. 
And then the second one is aversion. Okay, let's talk about hate for a minute. Hmm. Yeah, why didn't they do it better? They could have, they could have made this building better, <laughs> for sure. Right? How could we have no bugs? That would be good. All the things that we, are you, have you noticed anything you don't like about this retreat? Anything you don't like about your life? Any way you wish that you could stay on this retreat so you wouldn't have to experience your life? Right? That's aversion. It's just aversion. It's aversion of aversion. I think that's really kind of interesting. I, I often, how do I say a version of <laughs> without saying aversion? Some linguistics person was really good at that. We call aversion also just a, a turning away from, right? So what are the ways that we turn away, just even so subtly that we can turn away from experience. So um, one of my aversion stories was, is my mom, who I've had really, I have a difficult, I have a difficult relationship with my mom, still alive, 86. Um, I feel like I need to love her because she's 86 because regret sucks, right? So regret's awful. Um, but we don't have a great relationship. But one of my experiences with her was about three years ago. And she was in the hospital. She was going in for surgery. And I was there with her. And um, they walked in and they said, you know what? Your blood pressure is too high. You can't go in for surgery. And it was, she was having spine surgery. She, she, she really needed it. She couldn't walk and was um, in need. But her blood pressure was too high. So they said, you know, when your blood pressure goes down, we can take you in. I knew, I knew, because here I am, I'm a meditation teacher, right? Like, I, I love people, <laughs> except for my mom. <laughs> and it's like, that super sucks. So I'm sitting there going, okay, I need to, right now I need to be the, that person, right? That generous, kind, loving person to this person who wasn't super generous, kind, and loving to me, right? So... I knew that if I held her hand and just kind of stayed with her and loved her, that her blood pressure would go down. I just knew that to be true. So I did, and her blood pressure went down, and she was able to go in for surgery. But the block that stood between me, the aversion that I had, because of all of the sort of I'm going to use the word hatred I had towards her for not being that person for me. It's like, well, she wouldn't have held my hand. Well, she, right? Like I had so much speak going on in my head. She wouldn't have done this for me. Why didn't she do this for me? Right? Like this was all going on. So in that moment, I saw the aversion. Like once I saw that that was what that was, it was a huge, it was a wall. It wasn't a block, it was a wall between me and loving somebody else. I saw that. I held her. Her blood pressure went down. She got her surgery. It was a success. But I use that as a story because, you know, that's what aversion does to us. Aversion keeps us separate, it keeps us in judgment, it keeps us avoidant. It keeps us away from all of those places that, you know, I, I, again, like I would ask the question, how many of you <laughs> want to feel separate from the world? You know, how much does connection matter? Like, I feel like we all, connection matters to us. But there's so many ways that we don't allow it to happen because we have principles or we have judgments or we have, you know, ideas we do that in our political movements. You know, it's like I know that there are people on it on the political side that are not the same as me. And there are also people that I love that are on that side that I really care about that have shown up for me. So, it's important to me 
to watch my aversion and how I disconnect or push away or ignore or neglect instead of holding close because of aversion, right? So here, you know, I'm saying all of these things to say like, how is this happening on our cushion for us? Right here, right here. So like my mom could be sitting right here, right next to me, or my ex-lover, or my husband, or my child, right? All of these people, (laughs) I remember there was a time, I said this in one of my groups, but when I was like, this is not a twofer. Like I did not pay for this person to come on retreat with me, yet here they are, (laughs) right? Like keep showing up right next to me. So since they're there, how can we work with that? Who is, what is this? What is it? What does this mean to us? Is this desire? Is this desire sitting next to me? Is this aversion sitting next to me? Right? Who's, what is my repertoire, my obsession about somebody I want and love and desire, somebody I hate? Right? They're there. (laughs) And so we're working with this. And then the, the third one is sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor are the words. I have students, I have some private students, and I ask them to send me emojis after they've meditated, right? And so they'll send me like a, pi- a pile of shit. Or you, You've seen emojis, right? So every time, like depending upon how their meditation goes, they send me a cartwheel or, or a pile of shit or a monkey with its eyes over it, right? I, it's really fun. And then I respond with something else. And one of them that, you know, the, the sleepy one is always, you know, there's the face with the Z's, Z's. <laughs> and then in, interestingly enough, the Apple app has sent us something with this like sloth that's falling asleep. <laughs> so one of my favorite emojis to send back is the sloth. So there's the sloth that shows up. That's just like our exhausted, tired, overwhelmed bodies. We're just tired, you know? And, and sometimes we need to acknowledge that and know that and make friends with it. And what does tiredness feel like? You know, what is, I kind of like tiredness in a way when I'm meditating. It actually helps me. Restlessness is a little hard, but tiredness, okay, so tiredness, here I am. My body feels a little bit warm, heavy. Okay, that's about it. (laughs) Warm and heavy. That's sloth. Hmm, Body, tired. And then torpor is the tiredness of the mind. When the mind is just super sluggish and can't, you know, it just can't. Some of you today... Um, and we shared this a lot, was that idea of um, the, the floating, wait, what did we call it? I forget, but just that like floaty, dreamy, you know, mind state. And we call it the poor man's nirvana, you know, because it's kind of sweet. There's kind of something really nice about it. We get to just check out a little bit and feel good for a while. And so I want you all to look into that a little bit. Is that, is that a checkout for you? Are we checking out from something that might be important to investigate that's a little bit deeper? Is it just the mind, you know, needing a break? Which is sometimes okay, but it's not all the time okay. So I'm going to encourage you, if most of your meditations feel like that, check that out. Am I just checking out, right? Is this a way to avoid something that really needs to be explored? So that's sloth and torpor. And then the next one is um, restlessness, which is anxiety, worry. Um, It's that, like, who's controlling in here? 
me. <laughs> it's that controlling mind. It's that mind that wants to plan. It's that mind that, you know, I, I like to call it the executive assistant, right? So we all have these executive assistants who are like, I'll take care of it for you, right? I'll do it. I'll plan it. What, what's next? So there's this, this way that the mind just wants to make sure we're okay. And it's actually quite a, it's a friendly mind in my, in, in a way, it's a friendly mind. It's a mind that wants to take care of you. But at the same time, it's a mind that thinks that if it plans and thinks and worries and controls, that you'll be okay. And it doesn't actually allow us, it's a hindrance. It's a hindrance to clear seeing. It doesn't allow us sometimes to experience maybe, okay, what's beneath that worry? What's beneath that anxiety? What's beneath that control? <sighs> you know, what is beneath that? Sometimes it's just like a plain old sadness and discomfort. Something that if we keep moving and marching, we don't have to deal with. Do you know what I'm talking about? Any planning going on in this room? And some planning is amazing. I mean, I wrote, I wrote a couple book chapters sitting in this room as a retreatant. You know, I needed to get something done. I got it done. But it wasn't, it wasn't actually, I wasn't actually allowing myself to stay in practice. So that anxious, worrying mind. And then the last hindrance. So I've talked about desire. I've talked about aversion. I've talked about sloth and torpor. I've talked about restlessness. And the last one, the fifth one, is doubt. And doubt is actually known to be one of the biggest ones. And I've, I've heard it come up for a few of you today. Um, oh, yeah, good. I have an example behind me. So doubt is that thing that says, why am I doing this? Why am I wasting my time? I could be somewhere else. This has no value. This, I, don't, I don't get it, right? I don't get why I'm doing this. And so at um, the Buddha's Parinibbana, so when the Buddha awakened, what we call Mara, which is sort of our, our metaphorical um, being in, in the Buddhist paradigm of the person who comes and just... Uh, says to the mind, you could do this, or you could do that, or this would be fun, or this, right? Like, that Mara is the, the titillator, the teaser, the trickster. So Mara came and said, you know, you should, you're, what, what do you, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You're not awake. You, you don't have this. And the Buddha said, you know what, I'm going to touch the earth. I'm going to touch the earth and this is going to give me my ground. And so this doubt, right? When we have this doubt, when we are like, why are we doing this? This doesn't make sense. Touching the earth, touching the ground. Um, there's no, the word faith isn't used a lot in the Buddhist tradition um, because it looks really different than it might in other traditions. But faith in our tradition is, is this idea of sort of like a verified faith, right? Like a faith that we actually get to hold on to because we've seen it in action. We've seen it work, right? There's blind faith and there's verified faith. So blind faith is pointing more towards, um, okay, somebody told me, so I'm gonna believe it. I'm just gonna I'm gonna just gonna throw it out there and I'm gonna believe it and I'm gonna pray and I hope it to be true. A verified faith, and I'm hoping some of you have touched on this, is oh I found this out for myself and it's actually true. So for me, my verified faith came when I had to come in contact with the um, aversion experience of loneliness. And so loneliness for me was a really big, that was my companion through most of my childhood um, and into my early teens. Like well, early teens, 
late, late teens, early 20s. So loneliness was my friend, right? And I just got really like close to loneliness. But loneliness led me to partying way too much, drinking way too much. But it mostly led me into relationships that weren't healthy for me. And so loneliness led me in the direction of I can't be, I can't be alone, right? Because I had this hollow, empty feeling. Can't be alone. Need to find somebody. Need to find somebody. Need to engage. Need to be, you know, in this constant searching, craving, longing, looking space. And so ultimately, my quest to fill this deep sense of loneliness, aversion, aversion, uncomfortable, don't like it, uncomfortable, have to quench it somehow, right? So desire and aversion kind of working together. Led me into promiscuity and bad relationships and just like that search, right? Must fill, must feed. It's like, (laughs) you felt, what was the, um, what's the cactus, the, uh, Huh? Little Shop of Horrors, thank you. <laughs> Wait, well, who is Sydney? Seymour. 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 Do you know Seymour? <laughs> Do you know? Go see that movie when you leave here. <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors, Seymour is a plant. It's a plant that you can't you can't feed it enough. Seymour is unquenchable. And so there's this unquenchable need when we have desire and aversion running at the same time. And so my loneliness um, led me down all kinds of roads that were really unhealthy and really unskillful. And I thought somehow, and, and you can place whatever your thing is in there. So like maybe your thing isn't loneliness. Maybe your thing is sadness or fear or whatever, right? My loneliness... And then I realized, you know what, this isn't, this isn't doing it. <laughs> like, this doesn't end. There is no quenching. The quenching doesn't happen. And so when I came to the mindfulness practice in my early 20s, and said, oh, okay, I'm just going to check loneliness out. What does loneliness look like? Okay. So, like, each of you can check into that. For me, loneliness, like, Mm, belly, empty, heart, heavy, throat, tight, right? That was loneliness. So every time I had that loneliness feeling, when I typically would have acted on it to create a moment that I thought was going to take it away, I just let it be there. I just said, okay, I'm going to experience loneliness. Belly, heart, throat. This is sensation. This is sensation. That's all this is, is sensation. My sensation, typically with an untrained mind, that puppy mind that I was talking about, the puppy wanted to go have sex. (laughs) Right? The mind that was trained, that knew how to sit and stay, said, yeah, I, I see that. I feel that. That's real. I'm going to stay anyway. Right? So like that trained dog, that's going to stand by your side no matter what. They're not going to move. So I trained my mind, I trained my heart to say I'm okay. I'm okay not having to chase. Wow, that was huge for me because one thing, I did not trust myself before that because my behavior was not trustworthy. So I suddenly trusted myself. Oh, that's kind of cool. I stopped causing harm to other people. I stopped causing harm to myself. And that was all and only because I decided I was going to allow myself to feel the sensations of loneliness. That was it. Like, it was that simple. I've done the same thing with fear. I have a lot of fear. I had a lot of violent images in my mind. A lot. And I still do. Those haven't gone away. The loneliness has gone away. 
just so you know. That's gone. Like, I don't have that anymore. The fear, the violent image is still there. I don't have a gun anymore. (laughs) Right? Like, I used to sleep under my bed with a gun. Like, that's how intense my fear was at one point of my life for a couple years. I don't do that anymore. (laughs) It's a relief. So, you know, there are these ways that this practice, you know, we talk about it um, in such, you know, in such broad terms, but like, what are the practical terms? The practical terms are, it makes our life better. It just does. It just does. And what these hindrances, so we have these desires, aversions, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt. Um, And then we also, there's like these really positive and important and vital aspects to these hindrances that, that sort of, that we need, right? The, 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 the desire to be here is an important one. The desire to be on retreat, the the desire to see beautiful things. I mean, this rain is beautiful, right? That's okay. Like that's a sensual, that's a sensual, I say sensual because our senses are seeing it, right? Our eyes are our sense doors and we're seeing that. That's beautiful. What's it like to allow ourselves to experience the beauty of our senses? The wisdom of our aversion, right? The discernment of our aversion. When we're tired, if we're tired, we need to listen and pay attention to our sloth, (laughs) right? That sloth needs to be listened to. How often do we not give our bodies a break? You know, I'm a workhorse. I am. It's not always good. Like sometimes I'm really just tired. I need to take a break. Sometimes worry is real. And sometimes doubt is healthy. Right? We don't just have blind faith about everything. So all of these hindrances also have a really important element and aspect to them that we can learn from. And if we're seeing clearly, if that pond or that, you know, I didn't even bring that metaphor up. Okay, I'm going to leave that off. But, um, you know, if we're seeing clearly, we know when these are working for us and when they're not. We know when these hindrances are holding us back and, and making us avoid or not see or when they're actually useful and helpful. I have one of my favorite quotes here. Um, so just see if you can I often check out when people read poems or quotes so just see if you can stay for this as light increases we see ourselves to be worse than we thought we are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful thought and feelings We could never have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort, that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So there's this this knowing, this seeing that suddenly happens in our practice. The clarity, actually, we start to see the shitstorm more clearly. We start to know ourselves in ways that we might not like. But yay, like that's a celebration. It's a celebration because before we were in ignorance. 
And this was written by a 15th century, I don't know what he was. What was he? Archbishop. Oh, sorry. <laughs> he was an archbishop. He was <laughs> good man. <laughs> yeah. Bear in mind your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. Right? So I'm so happy to sit here together in our maladies. <laughs> right? I would far rather be with humans with a little dust in their eyes that are willing to check it out and maybe wipe it away. I don't even know if I have anything else to say. I did have, have you heard the rain analogy? It just seems apropos for today, doesn't it? (laughs) Is it going to rain tomorrow? Should I share it tomorrow? I don't know. So rain. Have you heard rain? No? Okay. I'm going to share it with you. Rain is um, a, what do we call them? What are, what are, what? Acronym. acronym. Thank you. I, RAIN is an acronym. Um, so R stands for recognize. So first is that opportunity to, to even know what's happening. I recognize, I see that a hindrance is present. Oh, this is aversion. Oh, this is doubt. This is not a human flaw. This is not personal. It's not about me. This is what happens. This arises. So recognizing an important aspect to this practice. Can I say clearly, I recognize this and we don't have to take it personally. What a relief, right? Finally. The A, so that's R. The A stands for accept or allow. So what if we see an aversion, right? What if we were, we're walking down to the dining hall, we're super hungry and we're like, oatmeal again, <laughs> right? <laughs> I promise you that will happen <laughs> as long as you stay here. Oh, okay, recognize aversion, oatmeal. You might love oatmeal, I'm sorry. No judgment on you. <laughs> I don't like oatmeal. <laughs> So recognize, oatmeal, aversion, allow, right? Okay, it's just oatmeal. Check that out. What does that feel like in this body? Okay, there's aversion, but I'm also hungry. Maybe it doesn't taste so bad. I'll add some extra stuff to it, right? So just this like allowance. My life, my life doesn't suck because they served oatmeal. I'm going to be okay. Like I'm actually going to be okay. I shouldn't really use this as a metaphor because I don't know where to go with the investigate part. <laughs> so, the, so the I is to investigate, right? So when we have these things arise, this investigation is actually checking out what, like, why do I hate something? Why do I like something? Why do I not believe in something? Right? What, what is that? Where is that experience? What does sensation feel like around that? Like the loneliness piece. Okay, so it's just, okay, what is not liking oatmeal? Where does that even live? Where does that live? It might live in an art piece or something, but it doesn't actually have a huge part of my experience. And then the N is non-identification. This isn't about me. It's not personal. That cook did not cook oatmeal because they hated me. I'm pretty sure that's not why they cooked oatmeal. But how many times do we walk through the world thinking it's all about us? And it should have been different. And that there was some way because we could have done it different or they could have done it different or, you know, the blame or whatever starts to happen. What if it didn't have to be personal? Like, what a, re- what a relief, right? 
What if I just knew that old age sickness and death, like I talked about with the, at the beginning with the Buddha's story, he went out on this search to find out what true liberation looked like. And one of the main things he came up with was, oh, that person that was old, that person that was sick, that person that was dying, that I saw, this is life. Like, this is actually what happens. It's not personal. We can't avoid it. We can't stop it. We can accept it. So that's back to, back to the rain, back to the A in rain. Right? So here we are with this, like, this is a big, this is big and beautiful. And also, it's like, gives so much permission to not have to worry so much, to let go, to be free. So it's not about me. It's not about me. This is life. This is what happens. The frogs are here. Do you hear the frogs? So let's just listen to the frogs together for a little bit. Do you think they don't like us? Should we take it personal? (laughs) So I'm going to encourage you tonight to just listen to some nature. Be in your body. Enjoy this evening. Enjoy your food. And watch how the hindrances might arise and then how we can also let them go and not need to take some take them so personally yeah so thank you for your attention thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org/donate